The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Good morning, Grace Church. Why don't we come back in and find our seats, please? Let's come on back here and take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes one last time. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 14 today. There are fill-in-the-blank sheets on the welcome table if you need to grab one of those. Uh, Otherwise, please take your Bible. Sung is going to come and read for us, and let's pray before she comes and reads our passage. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to come and hear from you through your word this morning. Please open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law and send your spirit today to give understanding, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goats, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. May he bless the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. I'm going to try to do this half with glasses and half without this morning, so we'll see how this goes. What if I told you that I could offer you an absolute guarantee that your life will turn out well? Young people, what if I told you there's a secret that will make sure your life is perfect at the end? Adults, if you're here like me, and I I know that you are, you're probably wondering how it all ends. How does everything that you've worked for and hoped for, worried about will turn out? How does it turn out? What if I tell you there's one thing you can do, it's a simple thing, that will guarantee that everything will be well? Does that sound too good to be true? Let's see what God has to say to us this morning in his word. You know, living in this world is like taking a long road trip to somewhere you've never been before. How do you go? Which road do you take? Which turn? You know, when I was a teenager, I loved maps. All right, if you're under 20, maps are these paper things we had before there was GPS and Google. Okay, they had these colored lines for the roads. They had, they'd show you how the city was laid out and shapes for forests. And you can look at the map and see how the world around you is arranged, how it's organized. The Bible's wisdom literature, including Ecclesiastes that we've been studying, is like those maps that I used to love. Ecclesiastes gives us the lay of the land, if you will, regarding life in this world, life under the sun. It's wisdom from God that we need to give us skill to live in this world. So in our verses this morning, the narrator who opens chapter one, he comes back in to summarize everything we've heard. And there's three parts to his wrap up, three things the narrator wants to leave us with as we close the book. 
I'm going to focus on the third thing the most, but we're going to briefly walk through the first two things before we accent the third. The first thing he's going to show us in verses 9 and 10 is that the narrator affirms the preacher's wisdom. He affirms that the preacher has been wise. Look down at verses 9 and 10 with me. Besides being wise, he says, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Is that how you've been thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes? Arranged with great care? I mean, hasn't it been confusing at times? I think that's the preacher just being honest with us. Life in this world is confusing, even when your job is to be a wise man. There's debate in the commentaries whether the preacher is truly wise or if what he's saying is completely off base. I think these verses tell us there's good here. There's good in this book that we've been studying. The preacher worked super hard. He did the best he could to piece wisdom for life together for us. Think about a jeweler selecting gemstones for a necklace. As she takes the setting of gold or silver, then looks at all of her different diamonds, sapphires, emeralds, maybe. She chooses just the right jewels to put in that necklace and make a stunning piece of jewelry. That's what the narrator tells us about Ecclesiastes. He says, the preacher looked all over to find these delightful, truthful words to teach the people. Let's think about a couple passages we've studied. The preacher could have said, there's a time for everything and just kind of moved on, right? Instead, he gave us chapter three, to everything there is a season. I mean, words so poetic that we've got popular music written about that passage. Or he could have said, everyone's going to die, so don't forget God, and kept going, right? Instead, he wrote the first part of chapter 12 that we studied last week, a creative word picture of the effects of aging on the human body. There's wisdom here. There's good. There's true. There's beautiful wisdom for us to profit from. The narrator does go on to warn us, though, in a fatherly way. He's like, prioritize God's wisdom over anything else that we might come across. Look at what he says next. Do you see it? How he tells his son to prioritize God's wisdom. Let's read verses 11 and 12 together. Verses 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Watch out, he says, beware of chasing after wisdom outside the words of the wise, which are given by a shepherd. I mean, the self-help section of Amazon alone proves the narrator's point here, right? There's an infinite supply of books written to help us figure out our lives. Don't chase those, he says to his son. Instead, make it a priority to listen to the wisdom that God has given us in his word. It, it's not always easy listening to wise words, though, is it? I mean, have you struggled with some of the teaching in Ecclesiastes or been convicted by it? That's what verse 11 is talking about. God's wise words are sometimes like goads to us. Okay, so you're like, what's a goad? I didn't bring my dictionary this morning. All right, think ancient cattle prod. Okay, they didn't have batteries or electricity back then. What they would do is they'd take a long pole and put a really sharp nail or a, a point on the end of it and they'd poke, they'd prod their livestock to keep them moving the right way along the path. The narrator here says, you know, sometimes you need to get poked too. Sometimes you need to get prodded to keep you from wandering off course. It's not going to feel good. It may be annoying. It might be painful, but it will keep you safe. I mean, can you think about something from these sermons that have been that way for you? How about it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting? I mean, what a buzzkill. 
That's a goad. That's a goad at work, right? Or how about the teaching that looking for ultimate meaning in this life is like trying to wring water from a dry towel, like Tab told us. That's pretty disappointing. Or the end of chapter four, embrace your neediness, the preacher says. These are humbling words. Those are goads to prod us to stay on the right path. Okay, so if there are all these competing voices, these books on the shelves offering us wisdom, how do we know what true wisdom really is? How do we pick which one? What direction should we take? That's what the last two verses in this passage are about. The narrator tells us what true wisdom really is. Look back with me at verses 13 and 14. Let's see the summary of true wisdom. The summary of true wisdom. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The narrator says, we've read the whole book. We've heard everything the preacher has to say. How do we sum it all up? He gives us six words, six simple words that help us take all of Ecclesiastes and put it into practice. Did you see them in verse 13? Look back down with me. Six words, fear God and keep his commandments. That's where we start to become wise. Think of Proverbs 1, 7, many other passages throughout wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The narrator says, here's where to start your journey. If you want to become wise, start here. Fear God. But what, is, what does the fear of God mean? In our modern context, fear is almost entirely a negative emotion, isn't it? I mean, do you ever, do you go around thinking, man, I'd really like to be afraid today? We don't do that. Back in the early 90s, there was a popular clothing brand called No Fear. I think they're still around, but it was an alternative lifestyle brand. Their themes were lack of fear of death, lack of laziness, contempt for social norms. And I had one of their t-shirts my freshman year of college, black t-shirt, big red eyes on it, said no fear right across the front. That slogan appealed to me, even as I was afraid my parents would see me wearing that shirt. Um, you see, when I was a teenager, and to be really honest, even now, I was anxious and afraid of a lot of things. I was afraid of hurting my hands because I played the piano. I was afraid of going to hell every time I did something wrong. I was afraid of what every person I encountered was thinking about me. I lived then and I still struggle today with a lot of fear in my life. That slogan, no fear, appealed to me. I mean, does it appeal to you? How wonderful would it be to live without fear? Except that's not possible. Remember the picture we talked about earlier of a map, how wisdom literature gives us the lay of the land and shows us the road from where we are to where we want to go? If you're on a journey, you need not just a map, you need to know what direction you're going, right? What, what tool, what instrument Young people, what do we use to figure out direction we're going? What's that called? Anybody know? It's a compass. You guys heard of a compass? All right, maybe you haven't seen a magnetic compass, but look it up on the internet after you leave. It, it's super important that compasses are calibrated correctly. That means that they're pointing in the right direction because a compass will always point somewhere. In our lives, our emotions, our desires, our loves, those are our compass. What are they pointing to? 
They're pointing to what we fear. Christian counselor and pastor Brad Hambrick writes, when you fear something, it's the first thing for which you look. When we fear God, we will look for him in all situations and consider his will. Okay, verse 13 is telling us that the fear of God should be the thing that attracts our compass that orients us in the right direction as we travel through life. So as, as we look through the Bible at what the fear of God is, I think there are two main ways for us to think about this. I think there's two, two handles, if you will, to help us grab onto and apply this command to fear God. Two handles. Those handles are relationship and response. Okay, to fear God, as the narrator of Ecclesiastes uses the term here, is to live in relationship with him and respond to him. Let me say that again. To fear God means to live in relationship with him and to respond to him. So what do I mean by relationship? Well, let's think about who the original authors and the audience of this book, this wisdom literature were. They were Israelites, a group of people who had been powerfully rescued from slavery in Egypt and been brought into a covenant relationship with the God who rescued them. They didn't just know about God in some impersonal way. No, he had come to live among them. The cloud of his glory in and above the tabernacle was always visible to them as they traveled through the desert. The people who originally wrote and read this book were called to live in the very presence of a holy and majestic God to orient every aspect of their lives in relation to him, to that cloud of glory that was in the center of their camp. Listen to Moses' words in Deuteronomy to get an idea of what the fear of the Lord is. Deuteronomy 10, he's talking to the younger generation of Israelites. Maybe they were only children when they left Egypt, or maybe they weren't even born yet. Remember, they've been out here for 40 years. He says to them, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, and I love this last part, for your good. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Did you hear the repetition there? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Love him. Serve him with all your heart and soul. Those are, those are relationship words. Walk, love, serve. Let's get help from one more verse in Deuteronomy to understand how every aspect of our lives should be considered in relation to God. Chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, verse 23, Moses tells the people, And before the Lord your God, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. He wanted them to learn to fear him by doing these things before him. The rhythms of life that God gave to his people as they lived with and before him were specifically designed to teach them to fear the Lord. How often? Always. Do you get a sense of that compass pointing north, of the magnetic pull of God that should attract our desires, our fears, our love? Okay, that's the first handle for understanding what it means to fear God, relationship. Okay, we should love God. We should live looking for him and his will, as Brad Hambrick said. So that second handle I want you to grab onto to get a hold of is response. 
Look again at verse 13. I want to see this together in our passage. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fearing God works itself out in my life, in your life, by keeping God's commands. We respond by obeying. In his commentary on Proverbs, Charles Bridges says that the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. There are two really important words in that description. One is affection, right? God's our father. He loves us and we love him. But I think maybe the most important word is the word reverence there. And this has been good for me this week to think about. I don't think about God with reverence as much as I ought. You know, he is, he is holy. He is transcendent. He is completely other than we are. We must approach him with affection, but also with awe, with humility, with a profound respect. After all, I mean, he's the being who created the entire universe out of nothing, a being who is or ought to be kind of frightening to encounter in all of his power and majesty. Like that's a healthy response. So when this being communicates with us, when God talks to us, we should probably listen. We should follow what he is communicating to us. So, and, and that awe, that respect, leads us to a response of, of as Bridges puts it, bending ourselves to our Father's law. I, I love this picture of, of shaping myself, bending myself carefully to what my Father tells me to do. And we've got this, uh, we've got this plant in our house, and its stem kind of waves back and forth a little bit. And the reason for that is because it has bent itself towards the brightest light in the room. We have to keep turning it around so that it's not always facing the window, so that it grows up kind of straight. That's what the narrator here, and that's, that's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to be like that plant, to recognize God as the brightest light in our lives. That's relationship. And then to bend ourselves towards that light, to change which way we're going so that we move towards God and his light. Do you guys get the picture there? That's relationship and that's response. Are you seeing how that works? In relationship, we fear God, we love him. We orient our lives around him. And then in response, we obey God. We, we lean towards his will as revealed in scripture. And there's, there's so much more to say here about this passage, particularly the last verse, but we don't have time for that. I'd, I'd encourage you to meditate on it this week. Look at verse 14. Just let's read it real quickly. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The narrator gives us motivation to fear and obey God. Why? Because there's a coming judgment when every deed will be revealed and accounted for, when every wrong will be put right and every evil punished. That's both fearful and encouraging. And, and again, I encourage you to just meditate on that as we read, particularly through the New Testament is what it says about Jesus as the future judge of all the earth. But, okay, so that's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of instruction. We've given you some words to think about there, but what do we do with all of that? How do we apply this to our lives? What does relationship and response look like this afternoon or tomorrow or maybe even right this minute as we sit here together? What worry, what temptation, what trial is pulling on your compass right now? 
How does this passage help us respond? Here's, here's Brad Hambrick again. He says, the problem is often that we view our fears as more real, more powerful, and more present than our God. So let's consider together some practical applications that try to help us see God as real, as present, and as powerful. I want to make a note here. This is not, this is not easy. This was a lot of work for me yesterday as I tried to work these out, and I hope I got close. This takes meditating on the word. This takes listening to God's voice. This takes working this out with other believers who are going to remind ourselves of scripture and God's word. And sometimes, honestly, this takes digging in with a good therapist who loves Jesus to help you make these connections in your life. So let's go through some scenarios. All right, what if, what if you've just learned that you weren't selected for the job you interviewed for? You feel deeply disappointed. Maybe you're ashamed. You're afraid that you won't ever get a job. You're afraid that people don't think about you or don't think that you're good enough. What does the fear of God have to say about that? Maybe, maybe it's Luke chapter 12. Consider, consider how God provides for the birds and the flowers. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Your father knows that you need all these things. Seek his kingdom. These things will be added to you. You guys see how that's working out there? All right, suppose you're here and you're struggling with a pattern of sin that you so far have been unable to break. How? How does the fear of God change your orientation toward the law that right now you've got a habit of not obeying? Maybe you need to remember Ephesians chapter four. It says, you were taught in Christ to put off your old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does this look like for me, having quietly started a really important project at work, and now I'd really like some public credit for it? It's coming to completion, and I, want, I would really like everybody to know how insightful I was, how forward-looking I've been. My compass needle is being pulled to the public approval of the people I work with. I need to obey 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, how about the next time you're alone with your phone or a computer and you're tempted to look at pornography again? Our passage speaks to this. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Or maybe it's Ephesians chapter five. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Maybe you're a younger parent. Maybe you're fighting through a season with little kids and those kids are wonderful gifts from God, but they are so challenging. You finally gotten into bed. It's the end of a long day. You're exhausted and you're discouraged. Fear of failure is gonna tell you it's never gonna get better. That you're not really a good parent. You don't have what it takes. Fear of God though will remind you of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So you can say, as that tired, exhausted, struggling parent, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses as I try to raise my kids so that the power of Christ may rest on me. How about this? Uh, maybe you're a parent of an adult kid. 
they're not walking with God right now. Maybe they've, they've seemed to have turned away from everything that they were raised to believe in love. How do you find peace in that trial? Fear says all is lost. There's no hope. There's no way to find comfort. Maybe the fear of God will take you to Philippians chapter four. The Lord is at hand. God's right here with you, with you and with your children. Don't be anxious about anything and everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Take your worries, take your fears to God. Ask him for what you want. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I don't, I don't know what every person here is going through right now, but I know that you are well aware of your own trials and your own temptations. I want you to be encouraged this morning. God is well aware of them too. I guarantee you that through his word and through his spirit, he will meet you with help to fear him and to follow his commands. Okay, so how's, how's this working out for us? I offered you a simple fix to make everything right in your life, right? Six little words, six easy words to follow. I mean, it almost sounds like a TV commercial, doesn't it? Made on TV, six easy ways to change your life, right? Your life turns out okay. Ecclesiastes said so. Chapter eight, verse 12 says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God for they fear before him. Seems pretty straightforward, but that's not our experience. Is it well with us right now? With all these trials, all the sin around us, disease, evil in the world? It's, it's like we said the magic spell and it didn't work. Why not? Because right now, we're still living in the world of Ecclesiastes. We're still under the sun with all of its fallenness and all of its pain and all of its evil. Somehow we know that fearing God leads to well-being, but Ecclesiastes doesn't really tell us how that works out. Are you wondering how it works out? Here's how it works out. It works out because there is one person who is alive today, not under the sun, but as the sun of a new creation. Let me tell you about Jesus. Whether you're new here and you haven't heard much about Jesus or whether you're an old saint who has walked with him for many years, let me tell you about him again. You know, almost 3,000 years ago, the prophet Isaiah told of a future member of King David's family who would be filled with God's spirit. Isaiah 11.3 says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's such a, it's such a great passage. I would commend you to Isaiah 11 verses one through three this afternoon. Just read through that passage. Let it tell you about Jesus. Some 600 years later, Jesus of Nazareth came to live under the sun, just like us, but saying things like, I and the Father are one, and behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus came to delight to take absolute pleasure in fearing God and is keeping his commands. This first we've heard from Ecclesiastes. You know he grew up with that. You know he grew up with this literature. He grew up hearing this. Jesus lived in perfect relationship with God the Father, and he responded perfectly at all times to his Father's will. He was the wisest person who ever 
lived. He proclaimed himself greater than Solomon, according to Matthew's gospel. Wise, obedient, in perfect relationship to God. According to Ecclesiastes 8, everything should have worked out perfectly for him. Instead, instead he was nailed to a Roman cross, executed as the worst of criminals. I, I don't know, maybe that feels like where you are today too. Death, not life. Failure, not success. But this man, Jesus, who was God incarnate, did not stay in that grave. God powerfully and publicly raised him from the dead. And I wish we had time this morning to unpack everything that the resurrection means for us in helping us to fearing God. I want to focus on the hope of the resurrection, the outcome of fearing God. Hang with me here as we, as we wrap this up. How do those six simple words, fear God and keep his commands, work out? They work out through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, that is, with Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you were united. You were one and the same person with the man who perfectly feared and perfectly obeyed God in your place. And because it will be well with those who fear God, it will certainly be well with you and with me, with all of us who are raised with Jesus in his resurrection, raised to life in a new creation where all will be well, where evil and sin and oppression and sickness and death and sadness are gone forever. You guys tracking with me? That's how it works. That's how everything is made well. So that's the narrator's conclusion for us this morning. He affirms the wisdom we've found in Ecclesiastes. He's helped us prioritize God's wisdom above all else. He showed us the way to live with true wisdom by fearing God and keeping his commands with hope in our resurrected Savior. Let's pray together. Our kind shepherd, our loving king, we thank you. We thank you for uniting us with Christ this morning. We thank you for not just providing words of wisdom, but for providing one who became wisdom for us, Jesus, our Savior. We ask for the presence of your spirit in us as it was in him to help us to truly fear you and to gladly obey your commands. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.